Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series, History, we'll be looking at the big picture of God's rescue story from Genesis to Revelation. Today's speaker is teaching minister, Tim Peace. I was thinking this week, uh, I, I just turned 34 at the, near the beginning of this month, and, uh, oh, thanks, I, I wasn't looking for that necessarily, <laughs> but thank you, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I got to thinking, I'm, I'm starting to, uh, I mean, I could call this uh, like, you know, I'm an old soul and make it sound like I'm wise beyond my ears, but I'm starting to get, I'm starting to develop this complex of, of thought that's, that's kind of similar to how we often stereotype uh, a grandparent, maybe. And I'll give you an example. When I was growing up, uh, you would see on TV shows or movies the, the stereotypical, stereotypical uh, Grandpa Eddie, we're going to call him Eddie here for no reason in particular, it's just stuck in my brain. Um, Grandpa Eddie's sitting around the campfire and, and he's telling his kids stories like, you know, back in my day, if it snowed six feet, I had to walk to school for 50 miles barefoot in the sleet and snow. You kids these days, you have it. So, now, I don't know why he would do the you kids these days thing in a nice campfire setting, but just bear with me. You know the routine that I'm talking about. This, this kind of, I had it really, really hard in my day, and it's just got a lot easier on you today. Now, I don't do this about snow, um, because I got plenty of snow days when I was a kid. But I'm finding myself do this in a particular setting. As I uh, engage and relate to college-age students, I'm starting to find that this mindset's becoming prevalent with me. You see, many of you know I'm still trying to finish. Uh, it's taken me a good uh, seven years so far, so I'm right on schedule. I'm trying to finish a dissertation and a dissertation is a really long paper or book, depending on how you want to. Actually, please don't call it a paper. I'm kidding. You can, it doesn't matter to me. But it's really long. It's a lot of work. And so I was once a, a college student. And so every now and then I, I find myself in a conversation with a college student, and, and, and I'll say, hey, how, how you doing? How's life going? And they'll say, man, it's, it's really challenging. It's really hard. And I'll be like, well, why? Why is it, why is it so challenging? And, and they'll say, we... You know, to be honest with you, next Friday, I have a three-page book review due. Now, I could have empathy, but I find in my mind that what happens is I start to think, three-page book review? I could do that in my sleep. Actually, I just did it just now as you were telling me this. No, I'm just kidding about that. Now, in their defense, I have people that have gone before me and written a dissertation do the same thing to me. It goes like this with them. I say, man, how did you, how did you write this thing? It's so hard. It's challenging. It's stretching me, all these things. And they'll say, you think that's stretching you? You should have had to do it back in my day. Because back in my day, we didn't have electronic resources to look up, okay? We had to go to this place called the library, and then we had to go through the decimal system and find the, uh, find the cue card that's got the book and the number. And then we had to go find it off the shelf. And once we got it, we pulled these things out of our pockets called note cards. 
and we would handwrite our notes down. And then we'd have to create an ordering system with the note cards and then get this. You'll never believe this. These guys use this thing called a typewriter. You ever heard of that? Are you serious? These poor souls. They had it so hard. Now, here's the thing. They did have it a lot more uh, difficult than I do. And maybe in some respects, I have it more difficult than the college student in their three-page review. But here's the problem. For me to think that way means that I have to have forgotten where I've come from and what got me to where I'm at now. Because here's the reality about that college student. Yes, that college student has a three-page book review. On top of about 10 other assignments per class, over about five classes, and they actually have to go to those classes, which are stacked hour after hour on top of each other during the week. And many of them are working uh, difficult jobs that change their hours up and everything. They've got to attempt to navigate a social life. If they're new in college, they've got to acclimate to the school system and make new friends and do all these things. And then on top of that, they have to find time within their irregular and erratic sleep system to read a book and write a review on it on top of the other assignments. You see, I could look at just the one assignment and say, well, I could do that in my sleep. But if I remember where I came from, I'd have a little bit more empathy because I'd realize their situation's not that easy. It doesn't minimize the difficulty of my situation. It's just a different situation. And so I want you to hang on this idea of forgetting where you've come from and forgetting who you are as we go about this morning. You know, speaking of remembering where you've come from, as Didi shared with you the last couple of weeks, uh, Angie and I uh, got to go with Didi and his wife Shannon uh, to Israel and Palestine, and, and we got to explore the Holy Land. And it was a really, really, really exciting trip. I mean, really, really exciting. As in, you know those people that go to comic book conventions? Well, this was kind of like that for me. I was geeking out the entire time, okay? And so we got to go do this, and I wanted to share a, uh, a picture with you this morning to start us off. This, now, this picture, here's the funny thing. I always feel weird about telling stories and showing pictures because to you, I understand, this looks like a pile of rocks, right? But this isn't just any old pile of rocks here. This picture, this pile of rocks, one on top of the other, this is actually the foundation of a palace. More specifically, it's the, the foundation of a king's palace. And you know, there's a story where we actually get to read about that palace. And I wanted to read this, this verse and a half to you real quickly to start the morning. It's in 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 and, and half of verse 2 here. This is what it says. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. Huh. You guys ever heard the story of David before? Many of you maybe have. Maybe you've heard of the name David. Maybe if you grew up in church, you've got some uh, cartoonish uh, animated stories of what David was like. 
Well, I wanted to tell you a little bit quickly. I mean, we're going to go through like all of 1 Samuel and part of 2 Samuel, so bear with me. But I want to tell you real quickly about how David got to this place, this palace. You see, the book of 1 Samuel starts off and we, we meet this, this fellow by the name of Samuel who gets the name of the book. And Samuel is a designated prophet. And he's, he's understood to be a prophet in the eyes of every Israelite, every tribe. They look to him for guidance because he's got the words of God to give them direction. But the thing about the Israelites is uh, during this time of Samuel, they've been at war with different nations. And specifically, they've been at war back and forth with these, this, this nation called the, the Philistines. The Philistines are big and they're mean and they're nasty. And they're at war and sometimes they are victorious and sometimes they get their butts kicked by the Philistines and it's a back and forth. And eventually the Israelites, despite the fact that they have God on their side, come up with this horrible idea. They, they go to Samuel, the prophet, and they say, Samuel, we would like a king. We want to look like all of the other nations because we, we see them as, as people that have order they're not having to worry about this situation or that situation. They have order to them. I like to think they might have wanted a king because they kind of wanted to have somebody to complain to, but they knew they couldn't complain to God. I don't know. That's just conjecture. But they go and they ask for this king. Now, Samuel knows this isn't a good idea because the only king they should need is God, the Lord, the Almighty, the Father. But God decides, and he says to Samuel, no, go ahead, um, I'm going to point out a king, and, and you go ahead and give, a, give them the king. And Samuel eventually gives them this speech that basically says, all right, God's decided to give you a king, but you're not going to like living under this king's rule. He's going to take what belongs to you, or at least part of it. He will enslave you. He will put you to work. He will put you to battle. He will run the show in a way that you don't really want, but you wanted a king, you're going to get a king. And so the first king that we meet that they're given is this guy by the name of Saul. Now, Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin, and what we learn about Saul in uh, chapter 9, at the very beginning of chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, is that Saul is handsome, and it says that uh, from his neck up, it's it's, he's taller than every other Israelite. He's, he's big, he's tough, he's good looking. Imagine Tom Brady with a beard and sandals, okay? That's, that's, that's the image. Actually, don't get that in your mind. But anyway, you get the point. Saul, for every reason under the sun, should have been this great king, and for a brief moment, he has some victory. But this is the way the kings are meant to operate under God. They are supposed to let God take the lead, which means they follow the rules, the rituals, the customs, the laws that are set before the people. And if they obey, just as has been the case with the Israelites from the beginning of time, if they obey God and they follow God, they will be led into victory. And if they don't, they're going to be handed over to defeat. And one day... In 1 Samuel 13, Samuel, who is supposed to lead the burnt offering to lead into battle, doesn't show up when he is supposed to, I guess. And Saul gets a little antsy. 
Because he can look out and he can see the Philistines and they're ready to attack. And he's afraid that the people are going to get scared because they don't have any direction. So you know what Saul does? He says, you know, I'm going to take the bull by the horns. We're going to go ahead and do this burnt offering right now. That way we'll be prepared to go into battle. Now, Samuel is God's prophet, and he's supposed to be the one that does the burnt offering. But Saul goes ahead and does it anyway. And then Samuel shows up. And I want you to hear what happens when Samuel shows up. He comes and he says, You, Saul, have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all of time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Man after God's own heart. What does that mean? Hmm? Have you ever thought about that phrase before? What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? Well, this is what I think it means. I think it means that it's somebody that uh, pursues with all of their being God, which means they not only want to live the way God would have them live, but they're also dependent on God. They wait on God. They answer to God. They walk in step with God. They don't go ahead. They don't fall behind. They walk in step They do as God would have them do. And it's because their heart is there. That's what they want to do. They want to live for God. And and see, Samuel has basically said, that's what a king is supposed to be. But you saw, you went after your own heart. You wanted to control the situation. You wanted to move forward in battle without the blessing of God. And that's not what a godly king does. So you're going to be replaced. And that's the sad thing about Saul, is he's a tragedy, because in the rest of this book, in the rest of this book, Saul doesn't ever turn back to God. Instead, he continues to act out of his own self-interest. He continues to follow his own path, and it ends up leading to his detriment, and ultimately, by the end of the book, it ends up leading to his demise. And so there's a second king. A second king, a man after God's own heart. And we're introduced to the second king, and we've already said his name. His name's David. And David, it's interesting how David is, is, uh, is picked out. Um, his dad's name is Jesse, and he lives in Bethlehem. And Samuel goes to this home, and he, he, Jesse has a lot of, of, of young boys, well, young men that are his sons, and so it's like uh, Samuel comes and he lines them all up to look him over, like he's picking a captain for the kickball team. And he lines them up and he says, not you, not you, not you, not you. Hey, hey uh, Jesse, uh, is this all your sons? And Jesse says, well, actually, no. Well, actually, l- let me tell you what he says exactly in verse 11 Jesse says, there is still the youngest, after Samuel was asked, are these all your sons? But he says, the youngest is actually tending the sheep. Oh, oh, guess what? David's a shepherd. 
You've heard about shepherds a lot over the last couple months, haven't you? Shepherd, that should clue us in to David's character right then and there. He's tending the sheep. So Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. So, you know, in keeping with our Super Bowl analogy, David's, you know, younger, doesn't really belong. He's like Nick Foles. Right? Anyway, okay, sorry. He's still, he, he's still, he plays the part. He looks the part. But he's also, he's the youngest of these brothers. By the way, he's not from the lineage of Saul, which in this culture, like Saul had sons, it could have or maybe even should have been one of them. But God's gone out of there. He doesn't care about the lineage anymore. He cares about the heart. And so he goes and he finds this, this young man here, this young David. And David is a man after God's own heart. So when we read about David throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, we find out that he is constantly and consistently victorious. Because this is, here's a couple of the high points. Y'all have heard the story of David and Goliath, right? And, no? Anybody? David and Goliath? Well, okay, well, we're going to talk about it for a second. David and Goliath, it's an interesting story. Goliath is this big, brooding Philistine guy. He's hurling insults at the Israelites. He challenges any of them. He says, I'll take down each and every one of you. And David's this, this young man. Now, I know that all of the uh, storybooks in your Precious Moments Bible show David to be like five years old or something. He's not. He's probably around 15 to 19. I know that's kind of a big age range, but that's probably about the range that he would be considering that he's the youngest son and all the other background information that would bore you. So just go 15 to 19 here for a moment. Now, David is interesting because he's been a shepherd, but he's a shepherd that's got some grit to him. In fact, he doesn't just have grit, but he's relying on God. And so he actually says, oh, you know what? I could take this Goliath. And not because I'm something special, but because the Lord God is with me. In fact, I've taken down lions and bears that have come after my herd because of the power of God that's with me. So this guy, he's nothing. And the story, if you go back and read it in 1 Samuel 17, it just builds up this difference between this big brooding giant and this young man that really has no business being out and against him. And it keeps drawing them closer and closer to battle. And so because of David's confidence in God, at one point, Saul attempts to put his arm, armor on David, but if you remember, Saul's bigger than all the other Israelites, so it doesn't fit and David doesn't feel right, and he has all the armor he needs in God. So guess what he does? He takes all of Saul's armor off, and he says, you know what? I'm good. I'm just going to go out with my slingshot and stone, because that's what you go to battle with, with a big guy with a sword. That's what he does, because he's confident in God, and he's confident that God will lead him to victory. So he does. He goes out there, and they have the showdown. 
And David draws back the sling. Actually, it's probably more like a winding, throws it. I don't know if it hits him in between the eye. All the cartoons say it hits him. Now, here's what's interesting. In the Old Testament, there's different ways that this translation is, is there. A lot of us, because of the kids' storybook stuff, think that it's the stone that killed the giant. And even some renderings of the, the English that we have say that. But, but what actually happens is you get a summary statement that David killed Goliath, but then it actually goes on and it says, David actually ran over after he knocked the giant out and took the giant's sword. And he stood over the giant, and guess what he did with the sword? He cut his head right off. That's not in your precious moments, Bible. Trust me. And then, later on, when David is brought back to Saul, David is still holding his head. This guy is a warrior, but he's a warrior that's guided by the strength of God, not his own might, not his own decision-making. In fact, David's kind of a softy, too. We find out that David's kind of a poet-musician. So imagine this. David's kind of like, he's like William Wallace that goes to poetry readings, snapping his fingers. That's David. And what we end up learning about David is this. Actually, we learn this from the two kings. A person, after God's own heart, doesn't forget who they were, and they don't forget who they are. See, King Saul had an ego, and it led to his downfall, but David, David doesn't seem to have any ego. He continues to follow after God's own heart, and it leads to victory after victory. And as you read along the story, Saul eventually gets jealous of David in 1 Samuel. In fact, there are songs being sung about the two. The song goes like this. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And Saul hears this and he gets jealous and he gets afraid because he sees that David is being exalted by the people and he's rising up and he's been anointed. And guess what Saul does? Well, he does what someone that's seeking out himself would do. He decides, I'm the king and I'm going to go hunt this boy down and I'm going to kill him. And he continues to chase after David so much so that David goes into hiding. But on a couple occasions, Saul captures, well, he thinks he's captured David, but then David outsmarts him. And on two separate occasions, at least, David finds Saul in uncompromising situations where David could have ended Saul right there and taken his rightful throne. But guess what he does? He spares him. Do you want to know why? Because he honors God. He says, this is God's anointed king, so I'm not going to kill you. Now, as the story goes on, 1 Samuel ends with the death of Mr. King Saul. It's a sad death. He's hurt in battle, and he tries to get one of his military commanders to come and end him, but he won't do it because he's the king, so, so Saul falls on his own sword. And then we turn the pages into 2 Samuel, and the good keeps on going for David. He becomes king first over Judah, and then under his leadership, the entire Israelite, all 12 tribes unite under David, and he's militarily victorious. He is a man after God's own heart, and suddenly, before we know it, 
David is standing on the roof of the palace of the king as king. It doesn't get any better than that. And as he's standing there, gosh, I want to tell you what happens next. It says in verse 2 that from the roof he saw a woman bathing. (laughs) The woman was very beautiful, and David sent to find out about her. The man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to her, and she came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Hmm. A person after God's own heart doesn't forget who they were, and they don't forget who they are. Right? So what happens when you do? What happens when you forget? We already saw with Saul, right? You don't continue to be after God's own heart. You you become after your own heart. And that can lead to all sorts of calamity. And I wish that what I just read to you was the end of the story of this odd and seemingly out of left field sin for David, but it's not. Because you see, David was somewhat fortunate that the Maury Povich show wasn't around back then. He didn't have anybody to do the DNA test. So he thought, you know what I'll do? I'll have Uriah, her husband, come home from battle and sleep with his wife. And then when she's pregnant, everyone's going to think it's his. But here's the problem with that. Uriah... Uriah is an honorable man, and he says, my men are out there. In fact, the king is out there. I'm not going to go home and live the good life while my men are out there in battle. So guess what he does? He goes to the doorstep of the palace, and he sleeps outside. Now, David hears about this, and he says, well, this is going to be a problem. I'm going to have to take care of it. So he sends word to another commander and he says, I want you to put Uriah out in the front lines of the battle. And when the battle gets the most fierce, I want you to call all the men but Uriah back. And Uriah gets killed. And David thinks to himself, problem solved. Now, do you know how many sins David committed in this scenario? I know there's some obvious ones, but I just want you to understand this man after God's own heart for a moment. First of all, he's committed adultery. Hmm? Second of all, uh, there's the covetousness of the situation, right? Because Bathsheba didn't belong to him. She was the wife of Uriah. Let's see, uh, oh, that's right. You know, a lot of times we read this story and we think that Bathsheba, what is she doing? She's out there on the roof. She's flaunting it, right? That's not what was happening. Get that out of your heads. Because what was actually happening was, according to the customs of the day, 
She was in her unclean period during that time of the month. And it says that she was out there ritually washing herself as was the custom. David, on the other hand, was at the top of the palace peering down when he shouldn't have been and saw this and sent for her. And by the way, if you're a woman in that culture, do you think you had much choice when the king comes calling? No, so actually David didn't just commit adultery, he didn't just covet. No, he actually committed adultery with an unclean woman, which would have been a sin. Um, Let's see, oh yeah, Uriah, 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 the Hittite, right? Yeah, Uriah wasn't probably from Israeli descent. He was a foreigner brought in to become a warrior companion to David. Do you know what the Israelites were supposed to do with foreigners? They were supposed to treat them with hospitality and care. Do you think having someone killed at the front line of battle was hospitality? Oh, ding, 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 another sin for David. And then the murder charge. The murder and the lying that goes along. Man after God's own heart sure can do some damage. Well, here's what happens after that. A prophet by the name of Nathan comes to David. And he tells David this story about a rich man that has a lot of property and a lot of animals and a lot of wealth. And then this poor man who only has one sheep. And he raises this sheep and it actually says in Scripture that the sheep was like a child. He actually let this animal eat from his own food and drink from his own drink. It was that valuable. Now, it says that the rich man had a traveler come, and because the custom is hospitality in the day, the traveler needs to be treated with hospitality, a meal made. And so you would think that the rich man would take from his abundance, right? But guess what he does? He goes and takes the one thing that belongs to the poor man and he uses it for his hospitality for this traveler. Now Nathan tells David this story and guess what David does? He gets angry. He is furious with the rich man. And then Nathan says, that rich man is you. And David's broken. The light bulb goes on. The man after God's own heart decided to go after his own. And he ended up the same kind of sinner as the king before him. I would like to tell you that that problem doesn't persist anymore, but you know, we've been reading through Romans as kind of our spine to this series. And Paul writes his letter to the Romans because he finds out that the Roman church is at conflict with one another. They've developed a a racial nationalistic superiority complex against one another. You have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and they are fighting with each other, one saying, I'm better than you, the other saying the same. And Paul says, you know what? This isn't the way God wants his church to be. 
So I'm going to tell you how it really is. And in the first part of Romans, he talks all about how all of us are sinners. And we've learned about that over the last couple of weeks, right? The Gentiles, they have this, what, general revelation. They know from nature the ways of God, and they should act accordingly. Now, the Jews, they had special revelation. They had the law, and they had scripture, and they should have known better. But every single one in their own right ended up being sinful, And instead, they need faith in Jesus, which everybody can have. So they're equally sinful and equally saved, and yet neither of them are acting like either. They have forgotten who they were, and they've forgotten who they've been made into because of Jesus. And so Paul, writing specifically in this passage to the Jews of the group, says this in verse 27 of chapter 3. He says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? Yeah, because that's worked out for everybody. No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Here's the thing. The problem persists in all of us. And there's a third part to the equation of being a person after God's own heart. And it's one that Paul tells over and over and over again. See, you not only have to remember who you were and who you are, but a person after God's own heart stays focused on who God wants them to become. They keep hope. They keep the restoration and the redemption of their lives at the forefront. They never give up on depending on God to continue to carry them along to become more like his children. They've already been saved from their sin, but they're also saved for a purpose. But if you forget who you were and you forget who you are, you lose sight of that purpose very easily and you end up thinking too highly of yourself and looking down on and devaluing everybody else. And that's what happened to Saul. That's what happened to David. That's what happened to this church at Rome. And it's what can easily happen to every single one of us. But there's hope. There was even hope for David. There was something different about him. I told you David loved poetry. I'm just kidding. No, actually, he wrote a lot of it in this book we call the Psalms. Actually, they're songs. He wrote this one in Psalm 51 that if you read the little subheading in your Bible, it says that he wrote this one after Nathan came to him And called him out with that story. I want you to hear this psalm. And it's on the screen here. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. It says, 
Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. But catch this. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. You desired faithfulness. You've heard the word repentance before, right? Well, that psalm captures it. Because it's a recognition of two things. One, we are all broken because of our sin, including David, the man after God's own heart. Which, by the way, if you ever want proof that Paul's word about the law not being fit for our justification, David's the guy. Because if there was ever anybody that should have conquered sin, it should have been the man after God's own heart, but not even he could do it. Not a single one of us can. So it's a recognition of our brokenness, but it's also a recognition of our belovedness to God. Because in this act of repentance, in this admission of guilt, in this turning back to God, David says, yet while I was in my mother's womb, you desired faithfulness. See, David went back and he remembered who he was. He remembered who made him who he is. And he remembered what God's plan was for him in the first place. And it's when we get those three things. It's when we get those that we too have a heart after God. See, when we live lives after God's own heart, that's when we actually see ourselves truthfully and it's when we see others truthfully. Because we and everybody else are broken before God and yet also we are beloved by God. And when we have a heart after God, a true heart after God, we not only give ourselves up to the work God has to continue to restore us, to continue to make us faithful, but we also will see the brokenness and the belovedness in other people. And instead of treating them the way David did when he lost that sight, we will be a light to them and we will bring them to that same faith in Jesus that we all come to. Please pray with me. God, I thank you for uh, the reality that um, I thank you that we can read a story like this and uh, we can look at the, the heroics of a figure that we may revere but turn the page and see that just like us, they're every bit as broken. And maybe on a worldly level, maybe we read the story and we realize maybe they're even a little more broken than we are, although in your economy, we're all equally sinful. So it's irrelevant. And so, God, I pray that... Um, that today at the heart, of, uh, the heart of why we step on one another and the heart of why we oftentimes fail to give ourselves over to you and fail to bring others to you is because the reality is, is we think better of ourselves than we should. And then in the same token of thinking better than our, of ourselves, we forget just how beloved and special we actually are to you. And so, God, I pray that this morning for each and every one of us in this room that we will walk out of here with a true picture of who we really are to you, who we were, 
what you've called us to and what you are still calling us to do with our lives. And I pray that we will lean into you and then like David before and after his sin, that our hearts will be after you and that we will walk in step with you all the rest of our days. We love you and we thank you for being good to us and it's in your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.